The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. The Investment Fix Podcast. Tune in today. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Luckily, this is a podcast rather than a video, so I don't have to get dressed up or even dressed at all. Actually, I can just lie back in bed like I am at the moment and record my podcast. In fact, I could actually interview people from all around the world at any time of the day or night with brilliant quality and with machines that I could only have dreamed of years and years ago, and I can do it from pretty much anywhere at any time. It's an incredible privilege. But it does make you wonder, what's the point of an office? COVID became that green eggs and ham moment when we were forced to stay home. And turned out, we knew how to work from home pretty well. Well, for those people at least, who used to work in offices. So it makes you think, what's the future of the modern office post-COVID? Well, now we know, of course, that many companies want their workers to come back to the office, and there's been quite a kerfuffle as companies such as Apple and Google and Twitter or whatever it's called now are called back into the office. The marquee one, of course, was when Zoom called all those people back into the office. But we now know that a lot of employees like to work from home. And they like the fact that they're not wasting hours each day commuting. It's also great for the planet. We're not pumping out lots of climate emissions commuting uselessly back and forth to the office. And from a company point of view, it could actually be a good thing. Maybe your offices don't need to be quite so big. But how do you know that you don't need too much office space? Particularly when a lot of people have kept their desk in the office but they work from home several days a week, particularly on Mondays and Fridays. Have you been into the main offices in town these days on a Monday and a Friday? It's like a ghost town, tumbleweed through offices and often down main streets. It must be enormously frustrating for building managers and property efficiency experts who are wondering, oh my goodness, why am I paying for this desk, which can cost anywhere between ten dollars to $15,000 per year, depending on what type of office you're in. That desk perhaps is only in use for one or two or three days each week, and you're paying $15,000 a year for it. Just imagine if you could remove that desk. But is it actually a good idea? This week on When the Facts Change, I decided to dig into the data on what is actually happening in our offices these days. How often are people in the office? 
how are they using the office? Are they actually there to use their desk or are they there to go into a conference room? And when they're at their desk, are they using their laptops and their PCs? Or actually, would they quite like to be in a quiet room so they can join a Zoom call somewhere else? These are the questions we wanted to find. And we spoke to XY Sense co-founder and CEO, Alex Birch, who runs a company that has sensors that go into offices and can detect movement of people. They're put into the ceiling, a bit like a smoke alarm, and they can sense movement of people, not actual people in terms of identified people. They're very clear that they don't track the movements of individuals and would never allow that. But for those planners, those corporate cost analyzers who are trying to work out how big an office space they actually need, that sort of data on how full the building is, how much movement there is, where people are moving, are they sitting at their desks or they're all standing outside the conference room (laughs) trying to get in? These are the sorts of questions. And post-COVID, it turns out we are using our offices differently. In some cases in the United States, less than half of the office space that was needed pre-COVID is now being used. Now, a lot of these offices are on longer leases. They might be four, five, six years. And it can be difficult for companies to get out of them in a hurry. But over time, you can see there will be many companies that downsize. They take only three or four floors instead of five floors. They may change the makeup of their offices from being a sea of desks in an open plan office to actually a whole bunch of closed off conference spaces or places that people can use to quietly jump into a conference call. This week on When the Facts Change, I speak to Alex Birch from XYSense about the new office, what's actually happening inside those offices post-COVID. Well, kia ora, and welcome to Alex Birch, the CEO and co-founder of XYSense, which is a US company, but with its headquarter and founders in Australia, that does something really interesting with data and sensors to understand how people occupy their offices and what they're doing with them. Alex, uh, welcome into When the Facts Change. Yeah, thanks, Bernard. Great to be here. Now, a few weeks ago, you put out a, a report which looked at how people were returning to the office post-COVID. Uh, could you tell us about how you were able to understand you know, how many people were coming back, how long they were at their desks, which days, which times, that sort of thing? Sure. So uh, we actually have been around since about 2016. Uh, This is not the first company I've co-founded. I've always been in prop tech, large commercial enterprises, and helping large organisations understand how they use office space. But uh, the conception of XYSense was around 2016. Uh, We saw offices back then were still the second or third biggest expense for organisations globally. And yet even then they were really only utilising them to about 60%. So 40% were Uh, unoccupied at any one time and there was no real scalable way to measure how offices were being used in an anonymous uh, and affordable platform so we set on this journey to to build xy sense Uh, we designed in-house a 100% anonymous sensor it looks a bit like a smoke detector goes up in the ceiling and it can count and aggregate people and what types of space people are using but all anonymously and then we make recommendations in the cloud platform Uh, how you can use your office better. 
And uh, yeah, fast forward to now, uh, we actually launched into market in 2019. We saw some great success and traction in Australia. Then the pandemic hit. Uh, initially, at the start of the pandemic, no one needed a sensor to tell them how many people were in their office. So uh, it was quite empty globally, maybe not New Zealand. New Zealand were doing pretty well. Uh, and then fast forward to now, we're actually installed across 17 countries, five continents, and seeing huge demand for uh, for how offices are being used and what the future of the, of the workplace looks like. So did you get enough of a baseline before COVID to understand what was normal, so to speak? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there are plenty of studies around prior to how offices were being used. We certainly got a good baseline in Australia. Um, and as I mentioned, this is not the first company I co-founded in my prior life. I co-founded another company, Cerevue, which measured utilisation as well. So certainly got to see that average of 50%, 60%, often we saw um, global orgs using 30% of their space and still paying uh, even up to a billion dollars on, on real estate every year on leasing costs. That's an incredible cost to think about. And uh, if you do the math, if you're only using like right now the global average 30% uh, occupancy, that means 70% lies empty. So, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars globally spent on empty office space. And then the pandemic struck and for a while um, people were at home completely and amazingly seemed to be able to do their jobs quite well sometimes. And um, for a lot of people, it was more convenient than being at the office. They found themselves not wasting a couple of hours a day on commuting. Uh, they were able to do more with their families and just quietly, sometimes the tech seemed to work better at home than in the office. Uh, so Alex, um, What's happened around the world you know, now, three years on from COVID, most workplaces um, are back to supposed normal. You don't have to wear masks when you go in there. There's, uh, there's no uh, QR codes to check. So what, what's happened after, after COVID? Mm. Well, I mean, I guess the start at the beginning of the COVID, we had almost defibrillators to shock the, the world of large organisations and have a remote awakening to enable people to be able to work from home. Uh, the technology uh, was there and people proved that they were as productive at home as they were in the office. And as you point out, they've got more time to spend with family, less time on commute. Uh, as times progressed, you, you're absolutely right. We've seen in the data last year, we saw an increasing curve going up and to the right in terms of utilisation throughout the year until we had the Omicron um, variant hit. And then we saw a stagnation or even a, a reduction in utilisation in offices. This year, we've, there's no COVID-related uh, interference, I guess you could say. And people, it, it almost feels like a distant memory for most. Uh, we're still, at, with workplace leaders, grappling with this question of what does the workplace look like now? But the general sentiment we see around the world is organisations definitely want people to come in more than what they are now. That doesn't necessarily mean five days a week, but to establish the connection to to think about career opportunities, to think about uh, employee growth and collaboration and ideation and bump factor encounters, all those sorts of aspects uh, I guess the culture of these organisations weren't defined overnight and you've got some very successful remote first cultures where an organisation has grown from day zero being fully remote, whereas now we've almost shocked the world into or transition or pivot into this hybrid world or where people are more from home and, and the connection and the culture, that's been an aspect that's been missing somewhat. 
So uh, the general sentiment is a hybrid world, a hybrid work with at least two to three days a week. Uh, we've seen all sorts of incentives from the carrot to the stick of trying to encourage organisations to get their people to come back more. None of them have worked, I would say, to the level that the organisations have desired. Uh, but I think in general, uh, organisations still want people back more. Yeah, I mean, every organisation's different. They've all got different cultures and histories and some things work better than others, depending on, on who you are. But we had this interesting standoff almost over the last year, depending on where you are, where often a lot of the bosses, if you like, said, right, time to come back. I really want you back. And there are a bunch of people who went, yeah, nah, no, I quite like this working from home thing. Are you sure about that? And I wonder, um, particularly with very uh, low unemployment and uh, a lot of competition for staff, how you've seen this sort of shake out. Um, have how how have um, managers and and property planners how have they all settled down into something they think might be normal? So specifically on the property planners, the building owners side, uh, I mean, most of the leases for large enterprises are long-term, 5, 6, 10, 20 years. So there will be a lag effect where there will be a change to, well, this is my prediction anyway, there will be a change to uh, the amount of office space that large enterprises lease because they'll be able to do it more efficiently. They're going to plan for their peaks, which will be on a Tuesday, Wednesday or a Thursday, but it won't be to the same amount of space that's required or thought required pre-pandemic. So the, I, th I think there will be a shift. There will be a delay in that shift. So from the mindset of a, a building owner, it's not quite status quo, but there's probably a storm in the horizon that people are planning for. They might not say it publicly as much, but that's certainly something that uh, it, it seems to be clear in the data. There's no inhibiting factors right now for people to... Uh, for, there's no COVID or mask mandates, as you mentioned, for to stop people from coming back. And as far as mandates or we'll put on free food, we're still not seeing five days a week that you would have expected in uh, pre-pandemic. So how do building managers uh, handle this? Because you've got a strange situation. It's a bit like the network managers and electricity networks. They have to uh, build their network to cope with the peak. But there's a lot of downtime, a lot of lag time where it feels like things are being wasted, in particular the Mondays and Fridays. And this idea that you have to have an office who can sort of handle everyone in at once if there's a special day on, and the idea still seems to be that people like to uh, have a desk. It may not be their own desk, but a desk. How are um, uh, property managers and office planners thinking about this, this peak issue? Mm. I, there's, there's an interesting contrast here because you do, to your point, plan to your peak. However, uh, around the world, we're seeing it consistently. Mondays and Fridays are very underutilised. Organisations are trying to do everything they can to encourage people to come back, whether it's free food, whether it's reducing friction and providing the right spaces to accommodate people. And uh, planning for the peaks, what they don't want to do is plan for the waste right now because it might create friction. So let's say, this is speaking in general terms, on a Monday and Friday, most organisations probably don't even use uh, uh, three quarters of their floors. You could shut those floors down and save on heating, cooling, lighting, cleaning, security. There's a lot of operational costs potential, but it, there would also need to be a lot of, with a caveat of contract rewriting for cleaning, et cetera. So it's not a simple thing. 
but it definitely could be a change and it will happen in the future that organisations flex how much space they use in terms of number of floors um, from between Monday, Friday, Monday, Friday, then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday being different. And what, what I really think is an incredible factor is if you think about globally, the number of organisations that are heating, cooling, cleaning, uh, powering, lighting their buildings on a Monday and Friday, uh, the energy con- consumption is just incredible. It's such a waste. Uh, Sustainability-wise, it needs to change. But then the operational cost of it all as well is very high. So you've got that contrast of the, all of the energy waste, the, energy, the op- operational costs, but organisations n- not wanting to discourage people to come in. So they're doing everything they can to get people to come in. And how is the landscape of the office changing or likely to change, do you think, as we move towards the office as a place to meet almost on special occasions, to brainstorm, to bump into each other all the time, not as a place to hide yourself in a cubicle and and focus on your work and then go home without meeting everyone because you could do that at home. So how, how does the makeup of an office change from being a place with lots of desks to a place with something else? I mean, desks will always be an aspect of it, but a place with fewer desks and uh, purpose-built spaces that really cater to the style of work of an organisation. So earn the commute, you've probably heard, that's an expression that's been bandied around the the workplace community. Uh, You really need to actually, if you are commuting for an hour and a half, say, to come into the office, then it needs to be worthwhile. So you need to have your connection points with your team. Uh, You need to be able to uh, deliver something better at work than you would have been able to at home. And that is a challenging thing, but we're definitely seeing a reduction in the number of work points, dedicated work points required. Uh, The ratio of enclosed collaboration spaces is definitely increasing. In fact, that's the most popular type of space in the office at the moment. And it makes sense because the open collaboration spaces, so think of like uh, project desks or tables interspersed across uh, workstations or um, soft seating areas, et cetera, we see them very seldom used in our data set and the, we hypothesise the reason behind that is uh, you've got fewer people in the office so the overall acoustic background noise is lower and most of the interactions you're going to have are remote so you're going to be in a video conference call and controlling the volume of a video conference call is quite challenging so you need to be in an enclosed collaboration space for that. So uh, in terms of the number of people, uh, you'll typically have meetings on average with between two and three people. And you'll need smaller rooms and you'll need to have that remote connection. So organisations, when they're designing new space, need to take this into account and really shift the needle so you've got fewer permanent workstations and more uh, spaces that are catered to that that hybrid remote and on-site needs. So in a way, um, the old idea perhaps of having completely open plan offices, which seemed quite democratic and um, transparent, Maybe that's not what works when all you want is a quiet place for a good teleconference. Yeah, sure. Then there's, there's plenty of science behind that in terms of the, the acoustic noise in the background. Uh, the higher that is, the the less your local noise, your interactions will uh, be heard by others. So some organisations pump white noise in as a background so that you can substitute the background or even play music so that you can have the, the localised conversations without interrupting people. But, yes, the... 
the open plan office, which was uh, very much the theme for the last 10, 15 years with activity-based working, where you would go to a locker, get your things and find a desk within your neighbourhood. Uh, I think that unassigned seating is still definitely needed uh, because that's a more efficient way of using space. But, um, yeah, the, the complete open office, that, that's quite uh, maybe a, a thing that needs to change. So we've got more of the enclosed collaboration spaces now. Now, one of the things I find fascinating about, about using sensors to understand uh, how things are done is that often they bust myths, bust these very persistent theories or ideas about how things are, but when you actually measure actual movements, actual changes, actual things moving one place to another, suddenly what you thought was happening isn't actually happening. What are the myths that that, uh, you've been able to bust, if you like, by actually showing the data of how people use offices, move around offices, stay in one place, come in, don't come in. What are the myths you've managed to bust? Yeah, uh, yeah I love that question. And one of the anecdotal stories I've got is uh, prior to having sensors, one of the most common ways to measure space would be to get people power and they would walk around with clipboards and do bed checks. And on the hour, every hour, you'd have a bunch of people walk around and say desk occupied, desk not occupied, etc. And I've heard stories uh, of there's a, there's a real fear that as a result of measuring occupancy data, space will be taken off different departments and departments won't be able to function as they were before. And therefore, during these older style bed checks, uh, EAs would instruct their team not to go to meetings and make sure they sit at their desks because they don't want the desks taken off them. When you're measuring 24-7, we're real-time every two seconds, still 100% anonymous, and we aggregate the data. So we're not identifying any individual or individual usage patterns. But when you do that, it gives you a much more complete picture about what collaboration spaces are used, what desks are used concurrently. And in terms of the myths busted, I think the major one is that the assigned seating, uh, whilst that gives individuals that sense of belonging in somewhere at home, it's not the most sustainable or operationally efficient way to run a business. And you can still have enough space so that there's no friction in the workplace and people can come in and work with their colleagues in their neighbourhood and not have that struggle to find a seat. Uh, so that's, that's definitely a, a myth that we're able to bust. And we do that by doing simulation. So we take existing utilisation data and say, look, the sweet spot is, say, 70% utilisation. Right now, you're using, you hit 70% once in the last 400 days. So therefore, if we were to take your utilisation footprint and reduce the number of desks, you would never have a problem. And we can convince them that that is a more efficient way of doing it and they can still conduct business in the same way. What sort of savings are people able to uh, achieve without, you know, uh, creating too little space and friction in the workplace? Yeah, the, like the Goldilocks zone, and that's the key. You can you can go too little, and I mean, if you think about the average cost per workstation globally, it's between about twelve and fifteen thousand US per desk. Uh, those numbers are changing as fewer desks are put in and more collaboration space, but that gives you a good metric of if you've got a floor of a hundred of those desks and you're only using 50% of them and you can actually fit another uh, 60 people in, you know, there's actually significant savings operationally. So into the millions, if you can, if you can do that across multiple buildings. 
When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 2526. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. With your senses, how do you um, overcome the fear, which is very real for some people, that somehow they're being monitored, that their employer is going to know exactly where they are every second of the day and, you know, come up in a in an evaluation with, uh, you know, hey, you're actually only at your desk 36% of the, of the day. How do you get over that? Because I'm, I'm sure that um, both for privacy reasons and all sorts of other reasons, you, you don't want to do that. Of course. And at Surface Deep, if you uh, understand our platform, it, we're understanding anonymously people using space, but it could be perceived in the way you've asked the question. So we des- designed our solution from the ground up to be in our DNA that nothing leaves our sensor than anonymous XY coordinates. And the purpose of our analytics platform is actually to make it a better experience for the inhabitants of the workplace. So we understand trends, we understand aggregations, we make recommendations on the aggregate level. We have no means to get individual usage of a space. And even if it were uh, uncovered, because it's 100% anonymous, you can never prove that it's person X anyway. And then they could be in a meeting room, they could be at their desk, et cetera. So where there's end user benefit, that's, that's where there's buy-in we typically find. So to make a better experience for people, to reduce the friction, Another common one I haven't spoken about yet is uh, because of the open closed collaboration spaces uh, high, being in higher demand, uh, conference rooms and meeting rooms, everyone almost shares a frustration that they can't find a conference room. So uh, they're trying to book a room or they're trying to walk around. All the rooms are booked and half of them seem empty. So being able to use sensor data to actually work out which bookings are real and cancel other bookings, et cetera, so that you can put more meeting rooms back into the space it's a good example of how you can have end user benefit. And when people understand that there's benefit for them versus they're being tracked and monitored, which is not the capability of our solution, 
then that's when we get the buy-in and that's why we've seen the success in our growth, I believe. And how do people use this data? We're used now to the idea of dashboards, which can give us a sense of, you know, hey, you're going too fast or too slow or there's an opportunity here uh, or you've got a problem with your oil level. <laughs> so how, how, do you, how do you express the data for building managers or, in fact, workers themselves so that they can see that, hey, we're going to change the makeup of these conference rooms and here's the reason why, because the heat map showed that it wasn't working. Yeah, and uh, half the battle is creating an accurate sensor that can capture data anonymously. And our sensors across the world, we're capturing approximately 100 billion data points a year now. Uh, but if we actually don't do anything useful with it, then we've, we haven't served our purpose. So aggregating that all into easy-to-understand recommendations on how space is being used is, is our uh, analytics platform and how we deliver the, the value. And we deliver value to the real estate teams whose job for these large organisations is to make sure there's the right amount of space for all the teams and they can look at the data sets and see oh, perhaps these teams have got not enough space because they're really busy and perhaps these teams don't have enough space, they need more. Uh, so there's, there's uh, ways and aspects you can help teams. Uh, we've got solutions to help find free space, so real-time wayfinding. Uh, and then we've also got solutions that can help with things like smart cleaning. There's no point in cleaning spaces if no one's been there. This is similar to like the sustainability operational things around HVAC. So heating and cooling is there, you don't need to heat or cool or do after hours cooling if you've got uh, no one on the floor. So combining occupancy data with smart building uh, capabilities uh, enables operational efficiencies as well. And I'm guessing from a climate point of view, um, the less energy used, uh, the better um, for those people who are tracking their carbon use. Yeah, absolutely. And you have varying degrees of smart buildings depending on how recently they've been refurbished. So some of the older buildings, it's a bit more difficult to dynamically turn air conditioning on and off at certain places, but you can certainly do it at a floor level. And if you have occupancy data, even at a floor level, you can still have operational savings. Uh, all of the, uh, most of the newer buildings are a little bit more capable than that and they can have more dynamic airflow, et cetera. And f feeding occupancy data into that is uh, definitely operationally beneficial. One thing I found interesting in your report was that you were able to see different trends in different countries uh, because everyone's COVID experience was different. Um, New Zealand obviously had a very short, sharp lockdown and then everyone came back to work. And my sense, uh, uh, having spoken to people overseas and seeing some of the stats, is that the conflict, if you like, about coming back to into the office isn't quite so intense here in New Zealand than maybe it is in other places. What's your sense from your senses in the various places about the, the change pre and post-COVID? Sure. And it does vary somewhat around the world. So I think short and sweet uh, lockdowns that New Zealand, maybe not sweet, but the short lockdowns that New Zealand had, uh, I think played a part in that. Uh, and there was, I remember being in Australia and with our New Zealand customers, they were already back in the office and they weren't even, they didn't, weren't even thinking about it. So there's, there's definitely an aspect there of being trained to work from home. But I mean, contrast that with the States where their lockdowns weren't as severe or enforced or uh, pervasive across the whole of the states. So they're probably one of the lower utilisation uh, utilisers of offices at the moment. 
And, uh, I mean, there's various theories going around for that, but a lot of people did move away, so they've got a much longer commute. The commute is typically quite long in the States anyway. Uh, there's also uh, uh, mandates and being told what to do. I don't think this is my opinion, but the US are not a subservient culture. Uh, so perhaps that has a play comes into it. I mean, if you look at where I'm from, Melbourne, we were the most locked down city in the world prior to China having the lengthy lockdowns. And we, yeah, we had protests, but nothing like what they had in the States. And uh, I think when people uh, ask to come back to work, I think around the world, the culture of the society has an influence in that. So, yeah, as well as the commute, also as well as what people have residentially in terms of their toolkit for remote work. So in America, they have larger houses, so they're probably more well-equipped to be able to have an office. I heard of a, a story for a remote worker in Japan. They were on a video conference call, and it turned out that they are in the closet because that was the only space in the entire home that they could uh, take a conference call without getting interrupted from their family. So there, there is an influence there as well. And um, from the point of view of an office um, owner, so we, we've got all of these offices owned by pension funds and, and companies who may be wondering, gee, uh, uh, if, if in the long run it shakes out that office occupancy is going to be lower and once there's a shakeout and companies start to look to make more efficient use of their property, you know, dropping from... 10 floors of office space to seven floors or uh, whatever it is, uh, the value, the rents able to be sustained from these floors per square metre might start to drop or not rise as fast. What's your sense of um, how much the market has already adjusted to this in valuations? Uh, yeah, I think it's still early days because uh, we, we call it the hybrid maturity adoption curve uh, where organisations who were fortunate enough to have leases expiring in the near term have been able to plan for uh, less space and tailor it towards a hybrid style of working. Others might, may have signed a 10, 20-year lease prior to the pandemic and the sublease market is fairly non-existent, especially in the large enterprise space. So there's going to be that lag effect uh, over in the States uh, with the the majority of commercial real estate loans, they're, they're the regional banks. So there's going to be economic pressure there, I think, as time unfolds and organisations lease less space. So it's definitely a theme. There's still a, a, an increase in utilisation overall, but it's very gradual and it appears like it's starting to plateau in our data set and it'll probably increase more as organisations give up space. So our utilisation metric will increase as a result. So I, I still think there'll be some economic impact over the next few years as this unfolds. And um, when you think ahead uh, after the shakeout, as people use their information more efficiently, how do you think uh, the new office is going to look like? What what do you sense works from your data, and you know how how you've worked with your various uh, customers? Yeah, I've seen it work best when there's been a very tailored study for an organisation for their ways of working. I mean, you can't take a big four consulting office and uh, they've got an amazing office and then apply it to a tech company uh, because they're going to have different styles of working or, or a bank, et cetera. Like banks have got uh, regulatory mandates where they need to have bubbles, they're called, where you've got different areas of space where then they're not allowed to interact and that's regulated by government. 
So each organisation's type of space is different, but where it's worked is where they've played paid close attention to how the different work styles uh, are there across their organisation because there's different work styles within and tailoring the space for it. So, I mean, a good example I heard the other day is for engineers, engineers like big screens and multiple screens and quiet focus areas, but they still uh, would come into work to be able to collaborate. So I did hear of a successful return to office plan for a big tech company where they, they did exactly that. They adjusted some of the spaces so that they did have the big double screens, the big private focus areas where they could they could actually work uninterrupted. But then nearby, they've got the collaboration spaces, etc. That uh, you'll need because you need you still need to collaborate with your with your colleagues and ideate uh, by drawing on a whiteboard, etc. So they've seen high utilization numbers comparative to the the rest of the data set because they've done that that unique design. And over time, you will have seen lots of tactics and and um, tricks and offers to get people back in. Is there any uh, any ones that seem the most uh, effective? You mentioned, you know, um, providing lunches and uh, that sort of things. But is it, you know, is it bean bags and pool tables, or what? What is it that that seems to work for a lot of offices? I think community building, treating treating a workplace like it is hospitality in that uh, you're competing with uh, working from home. So, yes, we've seen some transient increases in utilisation by putting on free food. Uh, However, food by itself isn't a draw card because you have to pay for commute. I've seen other organisations make it cheaper for parking, subsidised parking on a Monday and Friday. Uh, That had no impact on (laughs) the attendance on a Monday and Friday. And then you see mandates, so everything from the carrot to the stick. Uh, but where it does work is curated event planning. Uh, even XY Sense, we have monthly on-sites for a week where we bring our team together because we're New South Wales, South Australia and Victoria. We bring our team together and we have high attendance rates on those weeks and that really gives us an engagement point and we call it on-site as a new off-site. So there's various ways to do it, but I think event planning, coordinating, I know of an organisation in the States who... Uh, they have given up their office space, but they do town hall planning events. They rent out movie cinemas and they get everyone to come in. They get the CEO to talk. Uh, that's some more creative thinking on how they can get people together and connect versus the traditional workplace. And do you have an idea of, you know, how this might shake out in the way that cities arrange themselves and are built? For a long time, we had this model in our heads that there was a workplace, an office, a tower, and people would live in the suburbs and they would commute to their office nine to five and then go home. They might, you know, go to a restaurant or, or uh, buy, some, buy some food at a cafe somewhere near the tower. And that was how they arranged things. Their uh, uh, schools were out in the suburbs, their homes were in the suburbs, and their work was in the centre of town. But I sense with this uh, uh, move for some to working from home and also for the workplace to be more about meeting people rather than actually, you know, doing the work, so to speak, the, the function of, of the work, that um, the way that we organise our cities might change. Uh, what's, your, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, and that was a monumental shift for the ecosystem to transition. So all of the cafe providers, et cetera, have, uh, some haven't been successful, unfortunately. So in terms of city planning, we have seen, uh, in gen- I've just seen general studies where numbers of people back on weekends and after hours in restaurants 
uh, have pretty much in parity with what it was pre-pandemic. But uh, during the day, office hours, lunch times, et cetera, especially Monday and Friday, is much, much quieter. So that's definitely going to have to have an impact in city planning. Uh, something that I think is a pipe dream at the moment uh, that XY Sense would love to help with with the data that we provide, but globally seeing organisations do something with their office space that's empty on a Monday and Friday. Uh, if you think of, uh, I mean, it's now over 50%, I think it's 57% of the week uh, the, the office is not really open, uh, the people are not coming in. So Saturday, Sunday, Monday and Friday, uh, relatively empty. So that's four days a week where the ecosystem around it for workplaces uh, it will will not be have a heavy demand, high demand. So city planning is definitely going to change. There will be less requirements, I think, for that, that complementary. And the other, the other thing is I was having this discussion the other day that gone are the Friday night drinks. So you, that used to be a pretty traditional thing every every Friday and it's far less common to, to have that sort of social get-together because most people aren't there on a Friday. And you think that that would translate to a Thursday night, but I don't think it has successfully because you've got work the next day. Yeah, can't be fun to be owning a central city uh, cafe or um, pub these days. Uh, just finally, how do you think the landscape of the office uh, as a place that's identified with the actual company how do you think that will change in future? Because on the face of it, the perfect way to run an office is totally flexibly able to expand, contract, change days, change formats from being, you know, desks to being conference rooms. What you sort of want is is like a perfectly blank slate that you can somehow configure, move into, move out of. And you see some of these um, serviced office spaces start to go in that direction. Do you think that obviously for some organisations, banks and and others where there are regulatory requirements to, you know, uh, have uh, very controlled uh, environments, but for a lot of a lot of um, organisations, their, their control, their security is in their software, not in the actual uh, locks on the doors. So, do you think there is going to be uh, space for ultimate uh, office spaces that can be extremely flexible, both in what's in the space, but also who uses the space, and whether you know you can start to see real reconfigurability of 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 these places and times. Yeah, absolutely. Reconfigurability is a big thing that was uh, in its infancy prior to the pandemic that you could push work points around. They were somewhat limited by power constraints, but we're seeing battery packs that are portable, those sorts of things that enable a bit of more of a dynamic space, project space where you could tailor it. Uh, there's, there's definitely an aspect of that coming. In terms of like the more flex space, the, the WeWorks of the world, where it makes sense, especially for growing Startup, small organisations, uh, shorter-term leases, you can lease more space as you need, uh, having that dynamic use of space. The, they, the thing that is uh, possibly doesn't correlate to large enterprise there is the best and most successful offices really are an extension of the culture and the brand of the organisation, and it's very hard to portray that brand in a shared space. So uh, I think organisations still want to have that brand reflection, and you can just tell when you walk into a very successful company, what the effort that they've put into their workplace and how that permeates the brand and the culture and why it's successful. So there'll be an element of that. But what I do think there'll be is a joining together of those two things where you've got 
more shared spaces by the building owner, uh, multiple floors of bookable meeting rooms, boardrooms. I mean, a board meeting might happen once a quarter and it's a 30-person room, but the average number of occupants is probably closer to two. So is that efficient use of space? And is it okay to have a shared boardroom in a building that you can lease out on an as-needed basis? So I think to retain the culture and the brand and the, the iconic nature of large enterprises, they'll want to have their own space, but they'll potentially have less of that space and have some dynamic shared space that they can, they can use on an as-needed basis. Just finally, one of the other things I love about data is that sometimes it can be used to uh, expose those who aren't wearing any clothes, so to speak. And um, one of the things about offices is often they can be used to project power or to project status. And there used to be a time in offices when um, presenteeism was a thing, you know, making sure when you walk around the floor that everyone's in their glass box doing their thing or that there is actually glass boxes where you can see um, who's having the, the big meetings with the big people. Um, but when you you have the data, sometimes you can see how things really work or uh, you can uh, understand that that particular style actually doesn't add value to the company's bottom line. What, what have you seen in the way that people are starting to use data to maybe overcome some of these, you know, old ways that offices are, are used in the um, in the power, I suppose, the power dynamics in a company? That, that's a really interesting question. The presenteeism, uh, the ruffling of feathers maybe to, uh, to be able to be seen. I mean, some organisations offer larger offices, better rooms with views, et cetera, based on status of individuals. And we sort of moved away from that over the last 10 years with uh, the open plan office. Uh, so I guess data has already proved to a certain aspect that people, and if they're using space adequately and there's no friction in that space, I mean, for examples of friction, uh, I can walk around, I can't find a meeting room. Uh, I, I go from my locker to my desk and I don't walk on a straight path. I walk on this really curvy path trying to find a free seat. Those, those are elements that our data can help un, uncover and solve for uh, in terms of, yeah, that's probably the best answer I can give to you. It's a question. We haven't actually worked out an algorithm to, to detect, detect presenteeism yet or ruffling of feathers, or, or the, but perhaps, I mean, we do look at geolocation of spaces and which are more popular. Are they with the view? Are they close to the thoroughfares? What's the impact of acoustic noise, et cetera? So we, we do certainly do that. Uh, so when we have the capability to do that, uh, with 100 billion data points, there's a lot of different ways that we can cut and dice it, I guess, and... Uh, we're constantly looking for new ways. So maybe we can add in a presenteeism uh, dashboard. <laughs> maybe you can have a power mode button. Um, that's great. Alex Birch, the CEO and co-founder of XYSense, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. No problem. It was great to be here. Thanks for the great questions. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiai Butler here, Podcast Manager at the Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. 
the Spin-Off Podcast Network.